What is a deacon? What do deacons do? How do they function? And what is their relationship to elders? Let's talk about that as we go to God's Word. Let's go to Acts chapter 6. We'll also be going to 1 Timothy chapter 3, but our first passage is Acts chapter 6. Jamie Dunlop once wrote this, The elders are called to direct the affairs of the church, 1 Timothy 5.17, and deacons are called to support that direction. In our churches then, elders should make directional decisions, while deacons facilitate congregational involvement to make that vision a reality. Later on, Jamie Dunlop wrote this, elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, the congregation does ministry. I believe that is a biblical statement in terms of the fact that it arises out of the pages of a true understanding of Scripture. Elders lead, deacons facilitate, and the congregation does the work of the ministry. Let's go to Acts chapter 6. As we're going there, let me say that this is in the realm of what we call ecclesiology. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. Jesus said, I will build my Ecclesia, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is building his church, and he is doing it well. That is his primary focus. Christ loved the church, gave himself for her, and through his own ministry and the writings of uh, the gospel writers and then the epistles, we have the instructions of Christ through the writers of the New Testament. And so to be a church that is recognized by him, we are to function according to his specifications. It's just the same as in the Old Testament. We remember the construction of the tabernacle, the construction of the temple. Things were to be done God's way or else God would not show up, really, as the tabernacle is constructed and then finished only then did the presence of God in visible form, the glory of the Lord, show up. And that is the case, I think, with uh, churches in our own day. I want to be part of what God is doing, what Jesus is building. And for that to take place, I must pay careful attention to what Jesus said was his, his church and how he wants his church organized and operating. As we uh, looking at Acts chapter 6, let me just say this too. Let us always, always be aware of what is called chronological snobbery. It was C.S. Lewis who first coined that phrase, chronological snobbery. I think we all know what snobbery is. That's looking down the nose at people, saying we're better than others. We are more elite we're more sophisticated, we are superior, and that is obviously something to avoid with a vengeance. Chronological snobbery is the idea that we in the 21st century are much more sophisticated and elite and superior than those of previous generations. We have either a greater intellect or else we just know more 
And if back in the third century, the eighth century or the 15th, 16th century, and certainly even at the time of the New Testament, if only they knew what we knew, they would do things differently. That is all around us. The idea of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Chronological refers to time, and it's the idea that we in our time know far more than others and are better than others, and therefore the ideas of others in previous generations are either foolish or primitive or basically they'd have done things differently if they knew what we now know. When you look at a church and you look at the website of a church and you look up the leadership of a church, you would think that Jesus and the apostles had nothing to do with what is outlined in terms of leadership. Women pastors. Really something to be avoided because the Bible makes no allowance for that. Women elders, women preachers preaching to entire congregations. Uh, how can you read 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 and still do that? There are people that do that and they look at the New Testament not to come under it, but to observe it with that chronological snobbery looking down the nose and saying, some have even suggested this, Jesus would choose six men and women as apostles if he knew what we knew, if he lived in our time. I find that to be not only arrogant, but blasphemous. That, that is to put words in the mouth of Jesus that he never said. Jesus was not a compromiser, and he was not just compromising with the culture of his time. That's ridiculous when you actually express it. The culture of the time had a big problem with Jesus, especially the religious aspects of the community. Jesus took on the scribes and the Pharisees with a vengeance and told them the truth, knowing that many, many times what he said would not be received. So to say Jesus would do things differently, he would, rather than choosing 12 men as apostles, he would choose six men, six women now. That is chronological snobbery in the extreme. Let's avoid it. Let's avoid it. Let's go to God's word and come under it. I believe what we should be able to do when we go to a church website is find the terms and the structure of the Bible in what we see in the leadership of a church so that we have elders and deacons and elders are elders because they eld and deacons are deacons because they deek. You know what I mean by that? They fulfill the function of their God-given assignments. They do what they're called to do. And even with these words, when I say we have elders and deacons, many Christians long-standing in their Christian walk haven't really heard those terms. It's fascinating to me, but it's, it's really grievous to me because we have that chronological snobbery all around us that says, well, again, we're not going to use those terms. We're going to use much more highly sophisticated terms. And by that, they do things differently from what scripture commands. I don't want to do that. I don't believe I'll stand before the Lord Jesus and he say, why didn't you learn 
from those around you in the 21st century and just get over the fact that there was this primitive thing in the early establishment of the church. I don't believe that. I believe what he'll do is he'll uh, ask me whether or not, knowing the answers. Jesus never asks questions without knowing the answers. But he'll ask me, did you do what my word said? Did you come under my word? As a church grows, just like as a baby grows from uh, infant uh, times into adulthood, something has to happen. The spine has to grow to accommodate the growth of the body. Let me say that again. The spine has to grow to facilitate the growth of the body. And when the spine is impeded in growth, it limits the height of the body. It is something of a hardship whereby someone is uh, not able to grow as they should be growing by their certain time designations because the, 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 the spine isn't there. The, the growth of the spine hasn't taken place. And so spine refers to structure and uh, muscles and uh, organs are arranged around the spine, but the life of the spine and the growth of the spine is really vital for the health of the body so that it grows properly. So it is in a church, any given church. It's true of organizations, it's true of churches, but let's focus on the church. The spine needs to be in place to accommodate growth in the body. And what we see in the early chapters of Acts is the spine of the church being formed. And we have apostles doing what apostles are to do. And then the emergence of a new group within the local church body, something called deacons. Now, we don't see the word deacon in the passage we're about to read, but everyone I've ever read see Acts, sees Acts chapter 6 as something of a prototype, the first occurrence of something that became more than just a, an intimate uh, thought, but an actual reality in the life of the local church there in Jerusalem. We, we, we need to grab that and hold on to that. We're seeing in its early form what later became the deacon ministry, what we would call the diaconate. That's just a big word to say the deacons, the diaconate. So again, the word deacon is not in the passage, but many believe I'm one of them who would say that's what is in view in its early form. Uh, let's go then to Acts chapter 6 and read the passage. Verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, this, these are the Greek-speaking Jews, a complaint by the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews, against, you, you notice there, there's a confrontation taking place, against the Hebrews, because their widows, that's the Greek-speaking Jews' widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. So 
there was a daily distribution and certain people were being neglected and it was of a certain group, the Greek-speaking Jews. And so they spoke up and said, hey, something needs to change here. Look at verse 2. And the twelve, that's the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples, that's the congregation, and said, it is not right that we, that's we apostles, should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We'll come back to that. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation, the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they, that's the apostles, prayed and laid their hands on them. And here's the result. And the word of God continued to increase. It's as if the spine now allowed for the further growth of the body. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, of these seven men, Stephen and Philip became prominent. We read of them in later chapters. In fact, uh, Acts chapter 7 is uh, given over to the ministry of Stephen uh, before he was martyred. Philip is later called uh, Philip the Evangelist, the only one uh, mentioned by name in the New Testament as an evangelist. Interesting. But they both started uh, in their function in the church as servants, as deacons, um, again in this proto-form. So let's, let's go to the text and let's take a, a, a closer look at it. What we see is, as I say, the, the, the ministry of looking after the needs of people was going to consume all of the apostles' time. It threatened them, and it threatened them from fulfilling their God-given task of preaching the word and the ministry of prayer. You see that in verse 4. That's the, their focus that's what they need to devote themselves to. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that's what needed to be their focus. But it wasn't going to happen if they were then the only people in play to meet the physical needs of the church. The physical needs, the daily distribution and sort out the issue. So what we see here is that this was a vital ministry. And what becomes deacons later on in the New Testament is vital for the health of the church. Uh, I believe, again, this is the beginning of what we would call the diaconate. Now, the word deacon is not found here, uh, but the idea certainly is. And here we see the responsibility of what would later become the, the deacon ministry, the, the serving of the body. Uh, 
Uh, notice that verse 6. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. This shows the fact that the apostles were over, the, over this group, that they would answer to the apostles. And though apostles are not around in our day, elders are. And elders have their primary focus in the preaching of the word, the ministry of the word, and prayer. And it is for the health of the body, like in the growth of a spine, that elders uh, are not called upon to do everything, but to make sure everything's done. And there's a big difference between the two. Elders are called upon to lead, to uh, rule. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word, preaching, and doctrine. Elders are responsible for the vision of the church, the direction of the church, the doctrine of the church. And then deacons facilitate that vision. Deacons don't have the right to challenge the doctrine of the church. That's not their function. They're to take the vision of the church that the elders have put forth and say, right, let's make it happen. Let's make sure that along the way, physical needs are met. And here's what we know. God is concerned about particular people and all the people, those who are doing well and those who are doing not so well. Much of the New Testament address, addresses the need of making sure widows are taken care of, orphans, strangers, the poor, the needy, the afflicted, God is concerned for all of these. And that is, in fact, what is called true religion, to look after the widow, the, the one who, uh, back in the first century, didn't have a paycheck from the government coming along every week or two weeks or every month. That's not something that was in play. And when the husband died, the church took on that role for the believing community. The widows were to be taken care of by the church, by the church. And there was a list. In fact, 1 Timothy 5 is all about that. God is concerned about widows and orphans and strangers and the needy and the afflicted, the shut-ins, those who can't get to the church building, certainly the poor. And so serving tables was needed but it would not be helpful to the church if the apostles, who were then the, the teachers in the church community, couldn't get to teaching because of the needs of the, the, the physical needs of the church. So deacons emerge. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute and full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. Note in that it's under the oversight of the apostles, this new group is formed. The implication here is that the physical needs of the church are to be under the care and the oversight of what then became the diaconate ministry, the ministry of deacons. And I want to say this, 
This ministry should be, biblically, complementary to the ministry of elders. It should not be in competition. It should be complementary. And deacons are to function under the authority of the elders who are called upon to rule. But they function together. Elders and deacons function together. What is a deacon? Brian Borgman says it this way. A deacon is a man who is an agent of mercy and relief to those who are in need. I think that's a great definition. An agent of mercy and relief to those who are in need. Uh, I believe too that deacons are called upon to oversee the physical aspects of maintaining the church building, should a church have a building. The facility, in other words. Deacons make sure that the practical needs are met. The practical needs of the church. As we now go to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have more insight into what has become implicit as a ministry in terms of the diaconate in Acts chapter 6, uh, now becomes explicit in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. By the way, in Philippians 1 and verse 1, uh, there is a mention of overseers, elders, and deacons. And again, these are scriptural designations, scriptural ministries. The word deacon is uh, derived from the Greek word, a noun, diakonos. Diakonos, and it simply means a servant or a minister, someone who ministers to people. I don't believe it's there talking about ordained ministry, as in preaching, but a servant, a recognized servant. And their job is expressed in what would be the verb form, to, to care for, to wait on. That's what it means to minister. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate servant, isn't he? He said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So every Christian should be someone who serves. But there is a role within the church where someone is designated as a deacon, a servant with responsibilities to serve. Here in uh, Acts 6, it was to uh, make sure that no one was neglected as food was handed out. Other places in the New Testament, uh, the the, the deacons would make uh, plans and implement them to make sure the poor were taken care of. Acts chapter 11, Romans 15, and uh, 2 Corinthians 8, chapter 9. There's the distribution of, of food and clothing and, and shelter, practical needs. And the, the deacon organizes and takes care of those needs. Here in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
we have qualifications for elders, and that's from verses 1 through 7. But in verse 8, the Apostle Paul moves on to the subject of deacons. Deacons, he writes, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. All right, let's walk through the passage. Having established what a deacon is and what a deacon does, they serve under the authority of the elders. They serve the local church in terms of practical, physical needs. Let's walk through the passage and go through the qualifications. Deacons, Likewise, likewise to whom, likewise to what, likewise to elders in the same way, must be dignified, dignified, people of dignity, men of dignity. In other words, they should be worthy of respect. They should be serious. They should be honorable. This is not to say they can't have a sense of humor. Uh, but they must be serious about the things of God. Qualification number one, men of dignity. They must be dignified. Second qualification, not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. Here's the uh, idea of what we would say double-speak. Someone who says, as they're, discussing a subject, oh yes, oh yes, that's right, yes, that's right. And then when someone else with an opposing view says something, they say, oh yes, that's right. Uh, That's not helpful. We need to be consistent, not speaking out, out of both sides of our mouth, as the expression goes. No, we don't just say what we say because we think we'll be uh, approved of for what we say. We want to Uh, say the truth and not be double-tongued. To do that would be to be two-faced. It's the idea of being the hypocrite. I say one thing here, I say another thing there. That is a disqualification for a a deacon. Uh, Thirdly, nor addicted to wine. Uh, Not addicted to much wine. I think uh, what is in view here is what we would call uh, the alcoholic, someone who can't uh, function because of uh, their alcoholism. Although there are many who seem to get by with the use of alcoholism, uh, alcohol and so function in society under the radar, so to speak, but Really, this addresses the fact that they're in need of some kind of substance. Uh, That's a disqualification. 
they're addicted to much wine. Uh, they're often at the wine table. That would be a literal uh, translation of the phrase in the original. Um, not addicted to wine. You, you shouldn't have to question, is, is this guy going to be drunk when I see him? That, that, that would mean, no, that they're not uh, equipped in terms of the qualification. They don't qualify to be a deacon. Uh, the next one, number four, is not fond of sordid gain. Um, again, looking at the text, not greedy for dishonest gain. The uh, ESV says, this is not to say that someone can't be prosperous. Uh, someone can't uh, be a deacon if they own a business that's doing well. No, this is talking about character. These are character issues, not fond of sordid gain. In other words, there's financial integrity. There's uh, the ability to say, um, money's not my motivation. Money's not it. Now, why would that be the case? Well, it's, it's a terrible thing if you are filled with the love of money. As 1 Timothy 6 goes on to say, we're in 1 Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Don't get the idea that someone who is rich is filled with the love of money. Sometimes rich people are the most generous. And really it's a matter of the heart. Uh, there are poor people who are filled with the love of money. And there are rich people who are filled with the love of money. And there are poor people who are not. And there are rich people who are not. It's a character issue. It really is a character issue. Not so fond of sordid gain. In other words, I'll do what I have to do just to get money. Sordid gain. Um, dishonest gain, ESV. That's a disqualification. It's not about how much someone makes as a deacon. If they make uh, more than this amount, they can't be uh, a, a deacon. No, it's, it's to do with the heart. Money cannot be your God when you're giving it away. That's a good saying I heard many years ago. Isn't it true? It's not your idol if you can give it away. Amen. So someone who's uh, giving to God regularly, someone who is uh, faithful in their giving, but also um, is not dominated by the power of money. In the King James, they called it filthy lucre. Filthy lucre. No, that should not be uh, in the heart of a Christian who's being uh, influenced by the Holy Spirit. Money's not their driving principle. Financial integrity, in other words. Moving on, it says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, the, the word here about faith is not speaking of faith itself, but the faith. And here it's referring to the Christian faith. And here we're talking about doctrine. The faith is the Christian faith. Uh, Jude talks about contending for the faith 
the Christian faith. It's been once and for all given to the saints. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they know what the Christian faith is and they hold to it in terms of being sound in doctrine. Now, the main difference between what a deacon has regarding qualifications or what's required of a deacon and that of uh, elders' qualifications is that uh, in the list for qualifications for elders, it mentions apt, A-P-T, or able, better English in our modern day, able to teach. That's not uh, said of, of deacons. But what is said of deacons is that they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, he knows doctrine, he knows his Bible, he knows what would, we would say the gospel, and he holds it with a clear conscience. What does that mean? That there's a matching lifestyle. He doesn't just believe the right thing, but then there's this discrepancy that's so awful that you have to say, well, where's the connection with what he believes? No, there should be an overflow. Because you believe this, you live a certain way. That's what it means to hold to the faith, the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, there's a matching life to the profession that's being made. Now, we're not talking about perfection. In fact, I don't know anyone other than the Lord Jesus who's ever been fully qualified to serve <laughs> his father. No, no one. Only Jesus is fully qualified. But we're talking about there's nothing that is so counter to the Christian faith in the life of the man that we have to say there's no way he should lead. There's nothing that outsiders can say, well, look at that. Look at what he does with his money. Look at how he abuses his wife. All of those things. No, these are disqualifications. He must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. There's a matching life to the profession that's being made. Now, um, as we move on, let's, let's continue. Uh, a quote from Philip Towner. The qualification here stipulates that the candidate's adherence to the faith, holding to it, is to be unquestioned. And his conduct is to be appropriate to the faith he professes. The faith he professes. Very, very good. All helpful things. All helpful things. It goes on. And let them also be tested first. Tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. What's in view here? I don't believe it's a theological test. I don't believe it's uh, the case that a deacon uh, has to be a uh, theological student par excellence on the level with the elders. Uh, no elders and, and teachers uh, are given stricter judgment according to the book of James. Um, they are to know their Bibles really, really well and be able to teach. Deacons hold to the general principles of, of doctrine and know it enough to be able to pass it on, but they're not required to be teachers in the body. 
and that's an important distinction. These men are also first to be tested. So if it's not theological in terms of the test, what is it? I believe in context, it's character. In other words, that man is faithful in his service. And the message here is these men also first are to be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. In other words, don't rush the process. Don't rush the process. Watch, observe, see. Give them a responsibility and see what they do with it. Give them three or four responsibilities and see what they do with it and let their character emerge and should they do things well and people are blessed by what they've done, that gives them the right then to serve as deacons because they've passed the test. I've learned this and I think every pastor who's been a pastor more than a few years would say this, never, never promote people on the outskirts, on the fringe of the church. There are people that you think, well, they've got this talent, they've got this gift. Wow, I, I think they can even teach. Let's make them an elder. I, I know they only come once a month or uh, they, they only show up once in a while, but they've got this gift and if we promote them, yeah, that will cause them to show up more. <laughs> They'll be much more involved, right? That always backfires. That always backfires. You see, if you promote someone hoping that by their promotion and their office, they'll somehow now, as a result of that promotion, step up to the plate, you're asking for trouble. No, observe. See who shows up. See who continually shows up. See who is faithful and promote those who are faithful in their service. That's the message. That is so wise. There, there are many people I've observed over the years who have great talent, but their commitment to not only Christ, but the church is questionable at best. And it's wrong, in fact, to promote them. And it just asks for trouble, it really does. Let's move on or else we'll never finish. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, let them first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach, if they prove themselves blameless, the ESV says. Now we get into something of uh, a controversial area, but uh, I believe what I'm going to, uh, say from this point on is also valid and that's the area of deacons and deaconesses what's in view in verse 11 if you have your bible look at first timothy chapter 4 uh, excuse me chapter 3 verse 11 their wives likewise must be dignified hmm what does the NASB say, which is a wonderful translation? Well, this is what the NASB reads. Women must likewise be dignified. Notice the difference. NASB says women must likewise be dignified. ESV 
their wives likewise must be dignified. Well, which is it? Hmm. Well, that's where there's a bit of controversy because there's a Greek word, gynikos, and it's actually ambiguous. We're not completely sure whether that word means wives or women. It is legitimate to translate it either way. Now, many times, many, many, many times, when you look up a Greek word, you get your answer. Oh, well, there we go. The Greek word means this, therefore, this is the way to go in terms of the interpretation. This is one of the very, very few times where you look up the original word and you think, uh, well, I'm not sure. That word can be legitimately translated as wives and legitimately translated as women. And so what are we looking at? Are we looking at the wives of deacons or are we looking at women deacons? In other words, deaconesses. I take the view that we are talking about deacons' wives. I don't believe women are to be deaconesses. Now, uh, I'm going to lean heavily on uh, some notes I took listening some time back to a message by uh, Dr. Brian Borgman. He's a friend of mine, great Christian scholar, a great friend too. appreciate him so much. And I took notes on what he said, and I found myself in complete agreement with him. And uh, he writes this. The issue is not as clear as no female elders. I'd agree with that. In terms of eldership, it's absolutely clear. Uh, elders ought to be men. But is this a reference to deacons being women? He goes on, there are many complementarians who hold to the deaconess view and maintain male leadership. Again, there, there are great people who in every other area would say, yeah, we're in total agreement. But in this, they allow for women deacons. And um, here's uh, a number of arguments in favor of this being a reference to deaconesses. It's uh, a word that is ambiguous, as I've said. It can mean wives or women. Uh, the second point is, if it is wives rather than women, why are there no qualifications for elders' wives? In the passage before, starting in verse 1, why, if this is the case, are there no qualifications for elders' wives? Hmm. There's no corresponding instruction. Hmm. Thirdly, in Romans 16, Phoebe is called a deaconess. Well, let's put that in uh, brackets or uh, quotation marks. Some translations put it that way. But it could be simply a generic use of the word servant rather than an office. She's a servant of the church, not necessarily someone in an official position of deaconess. And I think basing uh, your, your view on 
Romans 16 and Phoebe is, it's not a good thing to do. It's, there's not enough there for you to make a doctrinal statement regarding it. I don't want to do that. I veer on the side of proving something rather than a, a, a potential inference. So what are the arguments in favor of this passage referring to deacons wives? And by the way, ESV and NASB, tremendous translations, but there's a division on this verse. And um, here we're talking about how to see the, the text. So what are the arguments in favor of this being the wives of deacons? Uh, Dr. Borgman says this, the flow of the passage is extremely peculiar if it refers to female deacons because it resumes the qualifications of deacons and the qualifications for female deacons would be incredibly short. Let's look at the passage. Is that true? Yes, it is. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife. You see that? The passage before, verses 8 through 10, is all about deacons. And then if it's uh, women deacons, all it says is dignified, not slanderous, sober-minded, faithful in all things. And then it gets back to deacons. It just doesn't seem to fit well with the flow of the passage. And it, result, it really is unlikely if... Uh, that was the case. Now, Dr. Borman goes on. If it meant deaconesses, he asks this question, wouldn't we at least expect to read the phrase, now, a deaconess should be a one-man woman? Yeah, we should. In fact, if that was present, if that phrase was present, I'd be totally convinced that they were right and I was wrong and I would change my mind. But it's missing. But the passage does say deacons are to be the husband of one wife. Hmm. It's a male leadership position. I really believe that. If that wasn't the case, I think we should expect to see deaconesses should be a one-man woman. We don't. He goes on. If deacons' wives, if it means deacons' wives, then it's within the family qualifications of verses 11 and 12. I agree. Their wives, that's the wives of deacons, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children, their own households well. That fits. These are qualifications regarding the family. Thirdly, there is a qualification for the wife of deacon because a deacon's wife may be involved in a husband's ministry of mercy in ways that an elder's wife would not be involved in his oversight or shepherding. I think that's a very important point. You see, if deacons or since deacons are given the task of meeting the needs of widows and orphans and strangers and the poor and going into uh, women's 
homes where another man is not present, it's absolutely essential that they go in not just by themselves, but with their wives. That's just the right thing to do. That's what is proprietary. That's what is appropriate. It means that there's no chance or hint of scandal in any way. And so that's not the case when an elder is doing his leadership and uh, is teaching. Um, he, he doesn't have to be uh, involved in the process of making sure uh, financial help is given uh, by placing in the hand of the widow a, a certain uh, designation of money. No, it's good for the husband to be with his wife as he serves in that capacity uh, as a deacon, not so much as an elder. An elder has a different role. That's because deacons deal with widows, single mothers, and having a wife engaged, again to quote Dr. Borgman, would be considered important. I totally agree. Uh, that should be in place. And number four, Phoebe, as we talked about in Romans 16, is non-determinative. In other words, there's not enough there in the text to make a definite decision as to what is meant. And therefore, I believe it's used in a non-technical sense rather than Phoebe being a definite deacon. It's not determinative. In other words, the Greek word there that's used. Um, he could have used the female form for deacons, but he doesn't. And that's clear. I want to build on what I can prove from Scripture. And I'm sorry, I've looked at the Phoebe passage and it's not determinative. More than this, let me sum this up. The qualifications we're reading about speak to the assumption that the deacon's wife is involved with his ministry. And I agree. Now let's look back at verse 11. I believe it's speaking about the wives of deacons and it says this, they are to be dignified, not a slanderer, not a gossip. In other words, uh, if, if the wife of a deacon is constantly slandering other people, it's a disqualification for their husband's ministry as a deacon. That's right, because again, Deacons are involved in the practical needs of people and it's not right that what is seen in someone's home is then broadcast around the church. There should be some rights to privacy, privacy. So it is. Sober-minded, temperate, in other words, uh, faithful in all things. Really the message here is someone who's dignified and controls her tongue. That's going to be important for a husband's ministry. She can control her tongue. Then we come to verse 13, which is a summing up. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. Here we're told the deacon and his role, the deacon, is worthy of respect if he does a great job as a deacon. And they should be seen as worthy of that respect, worthy of honor. 
In other words, they should be esteemed by the body. This is not to promote them and put them on the platform. I've seen churches where deacons sit on the platform and they are given esteem that way. I don't think that's what's in play. It just means when someone works well as a deacon, they have a high calling and they are revered in terms of given honor and they have great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. To quote Brian Borgman again, the work of a deacon is a vital and significant work. The church's health and well-being has much to do with a qualified, effective diaconate. Now, again, to summarize, deacons, uh, like the prototype we saw in Acts 6, function under the authority not of apostles, I don't believe there are apostles running around the countryside today, but uh, under the rule, the government of the elders, deacons are a vital ministry of mercy, a vital ministry of mercy. And they meet the practical needs of people and the church itself, the body of Christ. They're faithful as they serve and it's observable by God's people. And over time, it's an amazing ministry in the body of Christ. It is something every church needs. And going back to the earlier illustration, it's part of the spine that God has uh, put in place in a local church so that as it grows, there will be more elders, more deacons to help serve the body. Elders setting forth the doctrine and the vision of the church, the shepherding ministry of the church to lead and to feed and to protect God's people. And then alongside them, complementary to them is the ministry of the deacons who meet practical needs, allowing the elders to take care of their responsibility which is mainly prayer and the ministry of the word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, the head of the church. And rather than making up our own thing, we want to do his thing. We want to be his, his church, that which he is building. We thank you for the ongoing promise, I will build my church. Lord, let us be part of it and function as servants of the church, whether or not we're ever called to an office, let us be servants of the Lord and of the body of Christ. In this, Lord, be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.